under the current paradigm, small and medium-sized developers do all the work, we sell it to the larger aggregator, and then they capture the vast majority of the value for their investors. We're now making that small and medium-sized developer the investor. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about keeping solar developments in the hands of the developers. Living in North Carolina, a state that has a disproportionate amount of solar facilities, I know a few of these developers myself. It was a surprise for me to hear from today's guest that only a tenth of those who develop those projects own them after they start making power. And it's not the utilities who always end up owning them. Based on some outdated banking laws, solar projects were nearly impossible for the little guy to finance. Let me ask you, is a solar farm a piece of property or equipment? Turns out that made all the difference. My guest says they actually worked to get these confusing laws clarified. And because they now operate as essentially a bank for solar developers, they say they have the flexibility that banks still don't have. Now, I like solar. I don't believe it will replace all the electric generation that's been built like some people, but it has its charms. One of the things that's cool about solar is its populist appeal. I think this is why a lot of environmentalists like solar but don't embrace nuclear. You don't have to be a big, bad Fortune 50 company to own a solar farm. You can be a working man. I have a special place in my heart for these kinds of entrepreneurs. I saw a lot of this while working in the fracking industry, alongside the Chesapeake's and Exxon's of the world, were companies like mine, who'd started in my boss's kitchen. Now working in transmission, I was really struck by one of our contractors who'd once told us how he'd worked years for this company and that, getting laid off when the owner effed up. The way he put it, there comes a time when you're smart enough to stop working for the man and start being the man. Solar, like oil and gas, like transmission and so many others, has places for smart, hardworking and resourceful people to make a living and sometimes make stupid money. My guest says they want to help these solar developers help themselves. My guest today is Jim Spano, co-founder and head of originations for Radiant Reed, based in New York City. Jim is one of those guys whose LinkedIn profile has about 19 companies with present as their end date, and you know it's not a typo. Radiant Reed packages financing specifically for solar projects. They can do the same for storage, too, as long as it's co-located with the solar. We've discussed this loophole in episodes in the past. Like previous episodes, Jim and I also discussed the impact of renewable energy credits on the project and how developers can now essentially enjoy the cash flows of the power generated and these recs. You'll hear him mention SRECs, that's solar renewable energy credits, in which some cases are actually worth more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jim Spano. here with Jim Spano, co-founder and head of originations for Radiant REIT. And Jim, it's surprising to me that a solar farm cannot get conventional financing. Why is that? Well, that pretty much is a result of how most of the financial institutions have been looking at solar systems, viewing them more as equipment than as infrastructure. And I think that's where Radiant REIT has 
bridged that gap and brought the solar system into the real estate category where we can now finance it as a long-term asset that matches the asset life to the type of financing available. And one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes these solar farms are not purchasing the land, they're leasing the land, they're building the solar panels on top. Does that have anything to do with it? No, whether you have a leasehold interest or a fee simple interest in the property, meaning an ownership interest or rights to a leasehold interest, as long as you have the term of the life of the asset, you can finance it through that life. It's more a matter of most of the banks and financial institutions until they got comfortable with the risk associated with a long-term asset that's not been out in the field on a long-term basis, they were treating it more like equipment and anticipating a short amortization schedule to de-risk the long-term uncertainty that they felt a solar system had. Now that solar systems have been prevalent for you know, a good 10 years and we've got some good history on them and we've seen what their degradation is and so forth, companies and financial institutions are starting to get more comfortable with the long-term life of a solar asset as opposed to an equipment type asset. So how are you able to finance these projects when other banks and financial institutions have not, at least really to this point? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> a couple of reasons. First, we did get confirmation that the IRS would in fact treat these assets as real estate assets, which gives us the ability to have these assets in a REIT structure, real estate investment trust structure. And then under that structure, the investors have a tax preferred return, which lowers the cost of capital compared to a traditional bank. And as a result, we can lend at a competitive rate through that investment trust structure. Further, unlike a bank, we're not subject to ratios, we're not subject to reserves, we're not subject to any of the banking regulations. So we're just private investors and we understand solar systems better than banks do. We are solar developers that actually formed Radiant REIT for the simple basis of getting the financial institutions to recognize the long-term life of a solar asset. And with that legal opinion, we are able to raise private capital as opposed to investment bank capital. We don't have any restrictions other than those that are given to us by our investors. Where a bank might have a concern as to the production and life of a solar system, we have a very different view being experts in the field and as a result, our underwriting is significantly different than what you would see in a traditional bank. We're able to do things that banks can't. We've put together and paired our debt with tax equity. We can go out to the private markets and raise tax equity without any limitations. We can be not only more competitive, but we've actually designed the product so that it matches the needs of the developer and satisfies the risk profile of our investors. I work with the utility and I assume that we are talking about independent build to operate companies using this service, maybe a few co-ops. Who are the customers you're seeking out? Yeah, typically our customer will be any owner of a solar system that's looking to finance that solar system. We're not really restricted to any type of owner. Obviously, most utilities are not going to use our service because they get their returns based on their rate base and mm -hmm. you want to use their own capital. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I live in North Carolina. We have one of the largest built out solar in the country. 
definitely the largest in the east and it just would seem that look everybody who wants to build a solar farm is building it so what is really the need out there for something like this i feel like there's sure. more than enough companies out there that are building solar farms sure the need for our product is obviated by what you just stated. There's a couple of large companies that aggregate. So small, medium-sized developers will develop projects. They'll get them to the point where they're able to be constructed. It's called Notice to Proceed, NTP. And then they sell them to the aggregators. The aggregators are the large solar companies that are backed by equity companies like BlackRock or Goldman or Carval or any of the large equity investors in the industry. The small developer, medium-sized developer, takes a project to NTP, sells it to those aggregators who then finance the construction and then do the term financing. They aggregate from all the small developers and then they own them outright. And what happens is the small, medium-sized developer who actually creates all the value sells it at a huge discount because Mm. it's not de-risked yet. And when the aggregators acquire all the developers' projects, they finance them under a lower cost of capital. We're enabling that small, medium-sized developer. We're providing them the capital so they can take it from notice to proceed, build it out, eliminate the construction risk. Then we provide them long-term debt so they eliminate the default and interest rate risks. And we basically de-risk a project so that those solar developers can either sell it at COD for two to three times the value they sell it currently at NTP for, (laughs) or they can actually own it on a long-term basis and take advantage of the high cash flows that these projects generate. Under the current paradigm, small and medium-sized developers do all the work. We sell it to the larger developer or the aggregator, and then they capture the vast majority of the value for their investors. We're now making that small and medium-sized developer the investor so that they're actually owning the systems, at least owning them through COD where they're built, where they can sell them at a much higher value or own them outright. It's really allowing them to capture the value that they've created rather than passing it on to the investors. That's really interesting. I think most people just assume that whoever began developing the solar project was able to finance and ultimately own and operate their own facility. That's less than 10% of it. Wow. Solar systems. I recently interviewed two companies. I guess they could best be described as retail electric providers. One of them was not, but customers pay them their electricity bills. They purchase renewable energy certificates on behalf of the residential and commercial customers so that those customers would be, quote unquote, using 100% renewable energy in the financing and trying to get your capital. Do the RECs generated from these projects factor into your financing? Absolutely. The RECs are insane of dollars that are provided to compensate solar developers for the extra cost of developing solar or a non-carbon based fuel source. That's government incentives just like the ITC. The RECs, Renewable Energy Credits, factor into the financing because they're part of the revenue stream that's needed in order to offset the operating expense and to cover the capital expense for the actual construct. So it's a combination of your power revenue plus your renewable energy credit revenue. Those RECs really are designed to fill the gap or the delta between 
a market return in what a solar project would return on a cost and revenue basis. For example, if a current system costs a dollar and generates six cents of income, you have a 6% rate of return. If it only generates two cents of income, you have a 2% rate of return. If the market's at 6%, you would have to make up that difference by providing renewable energy credits that should be worth that cent difference. Does that help? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I would have to think that RECs, they're pretty much guaranteed, right? If no, RECs were to go to, well... They're opposite. <laughs> they're not guaranteed. They're market-based. And the intent of the RECs in the incentive system is if the cost to build these systems comes down, more systems will be built, less RECs are needed, and therefore the supply-demand will drive those REC prices down. Mm -hmm. If we don't generate enough renewable energy, those REC prices will go up, and with that extra revenue, it'll encourage developers to go out and build more systems because they can hit their return hurdles with that extra revenue. It's really a, a typical supply-demand market, and that's the way it's supposed to operate. Of course, you have regulatory interference so that when the government comes in, and a particular state comes in and changes the rules in order to increase the value of those wrecks so that they can get more solar built, once you start tweaking a market-based system with regulation, the behavior of developers is such that if they believe that if SREC prices come down and the government will increase the demand in order to get those prices up to stir more development, that's the kind of bad behavior that undoes a market-based structure. Because now the market's not based on supply demand, now it's based on a reliance that the government will come rescue if the supply demand results in a crashed SREC. Jim, your company name suggests you're focused primarily on solar projects, but any plans to move beyond solar to wind, hydro, geothermal? I talk a lot about energy storage, and if you're storing renewable energy, that energy produced should be renewable as well. Any thoughts about moving beyond solar? Yes, we actually have integrated into the storage space. One of my companies, different company is the up until I think tomorrow is the <laughs> largest residential energy storage system in the entire world. Unfortunately, I'm selling all my inventory tomorrow. I'm closing <laughs> on a really big sale. But yes, we've moved heavily into the solar plus storage markets, both on the utility side as well as on the residential side. You're doing solar farms. Would you ever do wind farm financing, things like that? Right now, we're strictly solar. We're adding storage. Eventually, we will go into other forms of renewable power, but currently our investors are focused where they believe the economics are best, which is in the solar space. What are the economics of a solar installation? What I mean mainly is what's a typical payback period for a facility in a relatively sunny area? Anywhere from four to seven years is pretty typical. Okay. And I've heard a lot about single axis tracking on solar farms, basically those gimbals that can move with the sun. One of my guests said that you get a lot more of that evening solar if you can track with the sun. Those things are clearly more expensive. Does that pay back quicker or is it more capital intensive? and the payback period is a little bit slower, but ultimately more revenue generated. No, ideally your returns shouldn't be affected because you're gonna have a higher cost, but then you can get higher production and you're gonna take the risk of moving parts. You can <laughs> have a higher return than a fixed tilt type system. But what a lot of people don't realize is the trick with trackers isn't necessarily just to track the sun and get higher production than a fixed tilt, which obviously as the sun goes up and over it, you're gonna have points of high penetration and then 
it fades as the sun goes down. A tracker can track the sun going down and keep direct sunlight onto that tracker. And that's where most people feel that they're getting the most value. But that's not necessarily the case because you don't get enough value to offset the higher cost of not just the construction of the tracker itself, but also the maintenance of the tracker. Because sure. unlike a fixed tilt, where there's no moving parts, when you have a tracker, you're going to have higher operating and maintenance costs. The real trick to maximizing the use of a tracker is shaving peak hours and shifting power. If the area you're in has a peak between four and eight in the evening, and you're in an area where the trackers can get the extra power during those hours, now you're getting the higher revenue per kilowatt hour for peak power versus off-peak power. That's where it makes sense. When that extra power you're generating is at the highest price, that's what makes the difference. Yeah, that power has got to be far more expensive than midday. We talked about storage, and I talk about this a lot. I try to get people to broaden their horizons beyond lithium-ion batteries. Are we only talking about lithium-ion batteries? Have you looked into mechanical things like flywheels, small-scale pumped hydro? Is any of that becoming part of the conversation? It's most definitely part of the conversation. Pump storage, for example, there's very restricted places that you can <laughs> utilize. It has to be a tight cliff or whatever, so that you can have the water go up and then come back down and, yep. and create the power. The asset that is going to be most prevalent, and it's primarily because of the cost. There's been so much research and funding done to lower the cost of batteries that their economics are increasing daily. At Radiant Reed, when you have storage paired with your solar, we're actually still able to loan to those systems, but I can't loan to storage systems that are independent of a solar system. Our focus really hasn't been on the battery side as Radiant Reed. Although I do have a company called MyResi that's purely a solar plus storage company. And they still actually solar plus storage in residences and then aggregate thousands of residences into large power plants. And that's what are called virtual power plants. I think you'll see a lot more of that going on in the future mm -hmm. where you'll have distributed generation and then storage with that generation with all those storage units combined so that they can interact and provide grid stability. Well, very exciting stuff. Jim, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, the only thing I'd say is that we encourage all developers to consider ownership <laughs> of their assets as opposed to the current paradigm where we have to sell them out at huge discounts. Yeah, very interesting to see that these small developers are not owning ultimately their That's own facilities. That's sad part of it. I'll give you a quick example. My first 70 megawatts that I developed, I sold to a fund. That fund charged its investors its fees and did very well, and then still yielded a 37% year-on-year return <laughs> to the investors. So I created all that value, but because I didn't have the capital, the guys that had the capital were able to capture it. Now I'm providing that capital to the developer so that we can capture the value that we create as opposed to giving it away to others that have access to the capital. I think that's a real headline here. Jim, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Great transitional fuel. Crude oil. Dirty, uninteresting fuel source. Nuclear. Not my backyard. <laughs> Coal. Dirty than crude oil and no longer acceptable. Wind. Very regional, but very reliable. Solar the most reliable form of renewable power. Biofuels. Economically challenging, but interesting. Hydroelectric. Again, regional and a prime source of power now and in the future. Geothermal. Also regional and challenging economically. Energy storage. 
absolutely necessary for a renewable grid. Electric vehicles. Increased demand and stress on our electric system. Energy efficiency. Common sense. Duh. If you don't understand the need for energy efficiency, then you don't understand economics, nor do you understand the value of money at all. <laughs> Obviously, putting aside the impact to the climate, energy efficiency is just a common sense thing. And then finally, fusion power. Very interesting, and I believe there'll be tremendous applications in the future, but currently not in my backyard remains the answer for nuclear. All right, Jim Spano, Radiant Reed, thank you so much for your time. You're quite welcome, Jay, it's been a pleasure. That was Jim Spano, co-founder of Radiant Reed, based in New York. You heard me tease in the intro, and Jim mentioned the IRS changing the classification of solar from equipment to real estate. Jim says they were able to get a legal opinion from Norton Rose Fulbright, one of the preeminent tax law experts in the country. At the time of this recording, Jim will be appearing on a webinar on COVID-19's impact on solar finance and development. That's May 28th. We'll have a link on the episode page on our website. You can find plenty of pictures on Energy-Cast as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. I want to thank Jim for his time as well as Liz Crumpacker at Antenna Group for setting this up. This is the fourth guest Liz has introduced me to. All have been amazing, and I know I learned something today. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 84. I want you to know I've been cutting these last few episodes while we've been sheltering in place during COVID-19. Over the next few episodes, we'll be examining how the virus is affecting our energy industry. You won't want to miss next week when we examine how Corona is hitting the utilities. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.